Your primary learning in life is from mistakes, is from error. And so designing your life for making learning-sized mistakes is critical for high performance. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Greg McEwen. You listen to podcasts, read books, follow the experts on social media, and you find yourself getting mediocre results in your business, in your health, in your relationships, and you know you're not living up to your full potential. You've not broken through the limiting beliefs that are holding you back. And if you continue on this path, there are consequences. If nothing changes, imagine looking back in 20 years with regret and thinking, what if? Like, what if I could have found a way to unlock my true potential? Like, how would life be different? Well, you can unlock your true potential. I'm hosting our second annual retreat, May 13th through 15th, titled Moving to Mastery. We're going to take all of the book knowledge that you've learned and all of the life experiences that you've lived and turn it into results. It's going to be an intense weekend of deep learning and powerful, immersive experiences that don't stop when you leave, but actually include an additional 30 days of growth following the retreat. We've reserved a private lodge and event center all to ourselves located on 330 acres just outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's an hour and a half drive from two major airports, Dulles and BWI, so it's easy access from anywhere in the United States or Canada. Space is limited, so if you are interested in self-mastery and finally getting the results you know you're capable of, reach out to me as soon as possible to apply. Just go to jimharshowjr.com slash retreat. It's time for you to move to mastery. I last interviewed Greg way back in October of 2016, episode 68, if you want to go back and check that out. But we talked about his book then. It was the number one New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And I frequently reference that book when I'm talking with my clients on a couple of key concepts that came out of that. But after writing that book, of course, Greg's career just absolutely exploded, and he had a hard time fitting in just the essentials into his life. And he realized there was another additional mindset to adopt, and that is the mindset of effortlessness. And he wrote his new book, again, a New York Times bestseller titled Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most. And in this interview, we dive in and pull out the best stuff from the book. He also covers a lot of this stuff in his own podcast titled What's Essential?, Greg is the CEO of McEwen Inc. And some of his clients include Apple and Google and Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce, Twitter, and Yahoo. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Fast Company, Fortune Magazine, Huffington Post, Politico, Inc. Magazine. And he's been featured on NPR, NBC, Fox, and, and he's been a regular on the Steve Harvey Show. I mean, he is a sought-after speaker. He's a sought-after author. I mean, his work is known around the world. This is the second time I've had Greg on, and man, his interviews do not disappoint. Here we go. Interview number two with Greg McEwen. It's been a few years. So since we last spoke, after you published your wildly successful book, Essentialism, you found your life getting fuller and fuller of essential things. You know, the guy who wrote the book was applying it, but still struggling and struggling to get everything done, which you know my listeners can certainly relate to. I can relate to. What was going on? 
well, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's a, the right problem to have, one could say, but it doesn't make it less of a problem. The kinds of requests that were coming in were more and more aligned to what it was I wanted to do. You know, I was traveling the world. I was working with companies that, in, in every industry. I remember doing a book signing where there were maybe, I don't know, 300 people in the line and, and around the corner, they ran out of books. They'd never done that before. I mean, this was the kind of experience and I felt very grateful for it and started to sense a sort of problem, really, because well, you, you remember perhaps the, the old idea of the big rocks theory, uh, which says, you know, if you put the small rocks in your life first and then the big rocks, then it doesn't fit. But if you put the big rocks in first, the most important essential things first, then everything fits. And I found myself, uh, as you alluded to, with sort of this idea, this question of, well, what happens if you have too many big rocks? I mean, then what do you do? And I think a lot of people can relate to that, especially in a pandemic world where they're suddenly homeschooling or they're suddenly having, you know, working from home challenges and they're suddenly having to pivot in all sorts of ways, work-wise. And, and, and you have a situation where you are focused on what matters most, but there's too much of it still. Well, now what do you do? I should say that in the midst of that challenge myself, we then had a family emergency where suddenly uh, one of my daughters was extremely ill and without any diagnosis as to why uh, and getting, you know, much, much sicker by the day. And so this was the tipping point. You know, this was like, well, it's, figuring out what's essential is an absolutely vital mindset. But it's not the whole story, because even if you strip off all of those non-essentials out of your life, you still might have not enough room. And so it led me down to a different path of saying, okay, well, if it's still too much, or if you, now what do you do? Uh, and I found that there really are two paths to any execution, to anything you're trying to accomplish. There is the heavier, more burdensome, more complicated path. And then there's an easier, simpler, better way. And what is strange about that is that many, many insecure overachievers choose the first path. So even if you say, select the essentials, and I've worked and coached many of them now, and they're doing that, they still approach doing those things in a way that's overwhelming, in a way that's overcomplicated, in a way that has them overexert. And so therefore, they underperform compared to what they could achieve over time. And so this is sort of some of the backstory as to why I felt it was time to actually write another book and, uh, and why I feel so passionately about this second mindset this, uh, that I simply think of and refer to as effortless. And so you launch into research about how to make life more effortless. We've got the essentials down, and which is, I think is always going to be a work in progress, but, but now how do we make these effortless? And so let's talk about some of the different ways, and there's a variety of philosophies that you discovered through your research. Uh, one of my favorites is just this simple concept of asking yourself, what if this could be easy? Can that really be a solution, Greg, for when we're trying to find success? Like, what if this could be easy? Well, yes, it absolutely can be. And one of the reasons is because of what I think of as the 10x dilemma, which is that everybody listening to this, right, they're, they're high performers, they're driven, they're part of the hit squad, the hardworking, intelligent, talented group of people. For people in that makeup, they want better results, even 10 times better results, 10x results. 
The problem, the dilemma is that not one of the people listening right now can work 10 times harder. And as soon as you put those two realities together, you can see the dilemma that brings forth a book like Effortless that makes it relevant. When you try to work 10 times harder, you don't get 10 times more results. What happens is that you burn out without breaking through to your highest point of contribution. And so suddenly it's it's a bit like George Costanza in Seinfeld. Do you remember this episode where he's, you know, classic loser, that's sort of his persona. Nothing ever works for him. He always seems to ruin everything at the last moment until this episode in which he says, okay, do everything the opposite. That's right. That's a great episode. (laughs) Everything he does differently, the opposite of what his intuition would be, and everything starts working for him, just at least for that one episode. And I'm really arguing the same thing for insecure overachievers is that in a way you have to invert everything you would think of doing and and look at it from the opposite point of view. So when you start to try to achieve a new goal, instead of doing what you always do, which is to push harder, do more, no pain, no gain type thinking, you say, no, let's invert that. Effortless inversion. Okay, how could this be effortless? Yeah, how could this be easy? And, and, and another question I really like as a sort of coaching question is, how am I making this harder than it needs to be? And what you find is that there are many, many strategies, techniques, solutions that you are not even considering because you not only value hard work, but in a Puritan type idea, you distrust the easy. And so I'm arguing with these simple questions that you can make room for an alternative way of thinking. Uh, And and that thinking might be summarized as easy does not equal lazy. For a lot of people, they think it does. Easy equals lazy, and it's not at all the same idea. Uh, And so as soon as you're willing to put in effort, fine, that strategy will help to a certain degree, but what got you here won't get you there. And so, yes, this simple inverted question can help you to unlock the next part of your journey so you can get to the next level without burning out. And for the listener, what we're talking about here is we're not talking about doing, right? We're talking about stepping back, hitting the pause button and asking yourself questions. And for any new listeners out there, the longtime listeners know this by heart now and can probably say this with me. The the concept that we're really talking about here is I call it the productive pause. And the productive pause is a short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind, like clarity of action and peace of mind. I mean, Greg just gave us two powerful productive pause questions. Now you can't find success from what Greg just said. If you're just going to wake up doing the same thing today, because no better reason than that's what you did yesterday. And then you can wake up tomorrow and do the same thing as you did today for no better reason than that's what you did the day before. I mean, you have to stop. You have to pull back to ask yourself these questions. You have to hit the pause button to get more done. So Yes, it's so true. And, and this is exactly the idea is that it's a, it's a slingshot type approach so that you're saying, look, I might take a little moment to have to learn this new way of doing it. But if I can unlearn what's keeping me stuck at the point I'm at, then I have space to learn something new and a different way of doing life. And that is exactly what effortless is. So essentialism is 
about focusing on the right things, but effortless is about doing them in the right way. And there's enormous numbers of people, and there'll be people listening to this right now who want to make a greater contribution. They want to succeed. Maybe it's in in health or in fitness, or it could be in their business, it could be in their career, in their marriage, in their family. It, it could be in any of these areas, and they want to do it, and they know that it matters, but they're still, they lack the energy to do it. Or, or they, they find themselves after, you know, whatever, year and a half, almost two years coming up to this now, of this pandemic, teetering right on the edge of exhaustion. Or maybe they just feel like life, everything is harder than it needs to be. And if any of that is true, then they should at least consider a new mindset. At least consider, how am I making this harder than it needs to be? What if there is a different path? And I don't mean that suddenly there is a path that is that you don't put in any effort. No, I'm not arguing that. But I am saying that to simply, that that when the insecure overachiever overexerts, they actually make it more likely that they'll underperform. Greg, you also identified something that I see a lot in my clients, and that is the challenge of getting started. Like, how do we overcome the inertia that is keeping us stalled on a project, right? Yeah. We're talking to overachievers here, the, the insecure overachiever. I love that concept is that you see that so often. But we're stalled on a project and, and we're trying to start that business or train for the 5K or, or learn that new hobby or whatever it might be, right? And it just seems to take so much effort. How can we make that more effortless? Yeah, I mean, one thing, of course, you can do is stop focusing on the 78th step of your journey, you know, and, and letting that overwhelm, overwhelm you. Um, the, the, the idea of just figuring out what the actually obvious tiny first physical step you can take is more powerful than worrying about the 78th step and not taking the first one. And so if you can create a microburst of effort, right? A microburst is a, is a 10 minute timed 10 minute thing where you actually like put on your time and no more than 10 minutes. You could do less than 10 minutes. That's fine. But okay, I will work on this for 10 minutes. And at the end of 10 minutes, I'm going to stop working on it. You start to think about units like that. So that if you have something that's, that's huge and the very thought of it overwhelms you, you're already into exactly the cycle we're talking about, boom and bust uh, execution. What you want to do instead is to be able to do just the first thing. One of my favorite illustrations of this is, uh, you know, I spent the last 15 years working with companies in Silicon Valley. And one of the founders had this idea, this vision. In fact, I remember him sharing his vision, you know, something like 15 years ago, and he wanted to create a streaming service, a video streaming service that's going to, you know, work all over the world, uh, create content for it. He had this vision, but the problem was that the technology wasn't there for it. Uh, literally, the, uh, the, the pipes to the houses aren't there, can't allow for that level of video download. And so what does he do? I mean, the risk, and of course, in Silicon Valley, especially, the risk would be to say, well, Let's go raise $100 million. Let's raise a billion dollars and we'll build the whole infrastructure to allow this vision to take place. And I think if he'd taken that approach, it it could not have achieved. It would have been so costly. Eventually, it would have been pulled like many, many other technology projects of a similar vision. Instead, what he and the co-founder did is they said, okay, where do we start? And where they decided to start was we're going to go and buy 
a used CD. We're going to go to the post office and we're going to mail this to ourselves and we're going to see whether it's damaged or not. Does it arrive and does it arrive in one piece? And the next day they found that, that it did arrive and it wasn't damaged. And they said, okay, so we can start by just mailing DVDs out to people and having them mail back. We can start. And that's how Netflix began. You know, it's now, you know, well over 300 million, maybe 350 million people or, you know, worldwide is sort of swallowing up Hollywood, uh, you know, it, it cont cont continually uh, and all from a tiny first step. So that kind of microburst is the way I think to, to start to overcome the inertia uh, we talked about before we came on air, the resistance is just take on a tiny, tiny first piece. Uh, and, and then there's momentum in that so that you can do tomorrow the next tiny piece. No business plan. Didn't have to put together a pitch deck to raise their funding. They didn't have to build a website. They went to the store, they bought a CD and a CD case and mailed it. So what is that tiny first step for you? For That's for the listeners. Figure out what is the tiny, smallest, smallest first step? And, and first is the word, you know, I mean, obviously, you know that I care about the idea of priority, but priority means the very first, the priorist thing. And that's the key is, is it's not even just to do a small thing. It's to just keep working until you get to like, what is the first physical thing I can do? And, and once you've identified the first, actually, it doesn't even matter what the third thing is. You've got to do the first thing first. And in doing it, you can ignore everything else. Do that first step and, and, and put your attention. Ten minutes. Sign, sign up for it. What can I do within ten minutes? A microburst. You can break through most procrastination by eliminating that overwhelming, overthinking, overcomplicating version in your head of what the project has to be. Uh, that's what makes it harder to get started. The, start, the work itself, the first step isn't hard. By definition, it won't be hard. But the thinking about all the stuff, oh, it's like we fail before we even begin. It's like, you know, if you've ever seen a, a, a slide that has 500 words on it, it's not like we get to the first 300 words and give up. We do the pre-scan. We look at it. We're like, am I ever going to read this? I'm never going to read that. You know, so we don't even bother. And that's the same for execution is that we pre-scan in our head what it will take to do the 5K. Oh my God, that's way too much. I'm not even going to bother. I'm not going to start. So you're overwhelmed and overloaded. And so then you give it up before you've even begun on your journey. What we're trying to do is break through that. And, and let me just give you one example of this for somebody, because to put these couple of strategies we've talked about so far together, I was just talking to somebody about this and, and, and they said, okay, what's something essential you've been procrastinating? And he said, well, eating healthy at lunch. I said, well, tell me what normally happens. He said, well, you know, I, I get to noon. I, I, I'm a little bit hungry, but I, I, I don't want to stop. So I, I carry on and then it gets to maybe two or three in the afternoon. And now I'm past hungry. Then I'll go out and get fast food because it's the only thing closest. And, and I, this has been a cycle for a long time. I said, okay, so how can we make this effortless? How can we solve this problem in an effortless way? I said, let's do a microburst on it right now. What would it take? And he pauses in a sort of awkward way. And he, he sort of says, well, to make it effortless, he said, I guess I would just sign up for one of these services that just delivers to you every day fresh meal. I'm okay to spend to put the budget on that. And I said, okay, so what could you achieve in 10 minutes? Like if you, if you could, if we just stop right now and you did it. And he said, yeah, okay, I could find the service, sign up for the service, put in my credit card, choose the food and do it. I could do the whole thing in 10 minutes. 
I said, how long has it been a problem? 10 years. That's the idea, right? Like that, once you have an example like that, you go, oh, geez, maybe it is that way. Are you kidding me? Could it really be that I have a mental process that's so overwhelming and convoluted that that's what's keeping me from it? And so asking these questions can cut through all that clutter and actually get us to an action to propel us forward on those things that really matter most to us. I think it is as simple as that. Yeah, I agree. There's this small productive pause question that is the catalyst. I mean, who, who knows where this is going to go for this gentleman you just spoke about? I mean, it could be complete life transformation. Certainly uh, a small transformation is going to happen, but who knows when, when you start implementing this philosophy in, in your life. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. You tell in the book, the story of Robert Falcon Scott and, and Roald Amundsen the, in their quest to be the first to reach the South Pole. And the winner actually went slower. How is that possible? And how do we use this concept in our lives? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the insecure overachiever believes that the way to get maximum results is to put in maximum effort. Even as I say it, there's a truthiness about it that I'm sure is like, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's how the world works. And it's that way of thinking that actually makes execution much, much slower. And the reason is, so, so the, the, the British um, Captain Scott, I mean, people are probably familiar with the, the story of the race to the poles, but, but if you go back and read the biography, which I did, which is brilliantly written, there's, there's sort of more to the story than, than, is, uh, than is commonly known. And so the, the first team, I mean, let's just back up for just one second. No one had ever got to the South Pole. Nobody in all of recorded history. It was considered either impossible or close to being impossible. And so it, it captured people's imagination. Well, the British team, they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to max out. We're going to go as far as we can, as fast as we can. What that looked like in practice is that on the good weather days, they would go 20, 30, 40, you know, maybe even 50 miles. I mean, they would just max out. And they thought, well, that's got to be the fastest way to get there. But what they didn't realize they were creating in that intensity was also boom and bust execution. So the bust looks like on the bad weather days, they're so tired already that they can't make any progress on the bad day. So they sit. What do they do instead? It's not great for the psychology because they're in their tent, making no progress, nothing to do, whining about their experience, writing in the journals, well, we have the worst weather anyone ever had that ever was that tried to do this, which was actually patently false. It wasn't true at all, but it felt true to them because they were so exhausted. It changed their state to feel that they were had the you know such bad luck. Well, the, the Norwegian team had taken a different approach right from the beginning. Theirs was steadiness. Theirs was not intensity, but consistency. And their goal was to do 15 miles a day, 15 miles. It's been recorded elsewhere, reported elsewhere is a different amount. But, but when you go back to the actual study, the actual account, 15 miles a day. Good weather days, 15 miles. That means it sounds like a lot to the rest of us, but for them, it meant that they had to stop when they could go much further. And that's the counterintuitive part, really. The first surprising thing, you show restraint. You don't do the max to be able to make the maximum progress. Bad weather days, what do they do? Same, 
trying to make as close to 15 miles progress as possible so that they just maintain this consistency day in and day out. The plot thickens when they get within 45 miles of the South Pole. They have perfect weather conditions. They have perfect sledding conditions. They can make it to the South Pole within one day with a big enough push. And to up the ante even further, they don't know where the British team is. So for all they know, the British team is ahead of them. And the question really to listeners right now is what would you do? <laughs> what everyone would do. Go for it. Everyone's going to do that. Yeah, that's what I do. I know. That's what you do. That's what I would do. That's what everyone listening will do. Now, here's the next question is what would you have to believe about performance to stay the course 15 miles per day for the last three days? What would you have to believe to take that countercultural action? Because that's what the expedition leader did. Still took them three days, still average 15 miles per day. They get to the South Pole. Well, they have beaten the British team by something in the range of 30 days, which is really significant and not what we expect. It's not what we think would happen. We don't believe in steadiness like we should. Steadiness is much, much, much faster than boom and bust. And, and, and not only that, not only are they the first team to get to the South Pole ever, they are also have the sufficient reserves inside to make the 16,000-mile journey back to Norway, which is non-trivial because the British team arrive exhausted, burned out at the South Pole, and not one of them make it back alive. So they all die on the way home, or what would be the way home. So that's the story. That's the encounter. What's the point? The power of effortless pace. In fact, you just can't believe that this exists. But in the biography, the biographer describing the Norwegian team's progress said they did what they did. Here's his quote, without particular effort. That that to me still, I've shared that before, but every time I share it, I just can hardly believe that he wrote that thing. Sure. The opposite of what you'd really think, but that's their philosophy and that's the way they went about the trip. And an outrageous thing to write. It's the most physically arduous challenge anybody on earth at the time can imagine. And they achieve it without particular effort. Now, of course, they put in effort. Of course, that's just the, but that wasn't the defining quality. And, and so what is it? It's can you, can you set an upper bound and a lower bound in your life so that you can make great progress over time? I'm thinking here, I mean, one rule that I you know, really believe is don't do more today than you can completely recover from by tomorrow. Mm. Why? Because what you want is not to make a contribution for five days or for 50 days, but for 50 years. You want to be able to, this is the, the title of a, of a book that will come out, I think, next year by, by Cynthia Covey and her late father, Stephen Covey. We want to live life in crescendo. We want to live with our greatest contribution lying ahead of us, not behind us. And that's achievable only if you set a, a, a sort of a consistency 
by having upper and lower bounds. It's true for absolutely everything, right? You can, anything that matters to you. I did this with journaling, right? And maybe other people don't want to keep a journal, but I did. I wanted to write a journal. I wanted to be a diarist and I wanted to be consistent about it. I've been very inconsistent. You know, I'd write for a while, then I'd stop and give up for a while and so on. And, And most people that try do it that way. They do three pages the first day. They write an essay. They, they've got no time to be able to do that day two, three, and four. So they give up almost before they've begun. Hmm. I set the rule. I said upper bound, no more than five sentences a day, no less than one sentence a day. That was the bounds. Uh, that, I did that about 11 years ago. I don't think I've missed a day. I'm pretty sure I haven't missed a day in that whole time. So that's the power of it. That's the idea. That's why effortless pace. Uh, you know, the military term for this is uh, that, that's been popularized a little now is, is go, you know, the slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Uh, and, and I found that to be true in all levels of performance, high levels of performance over time. Yeah. Great lesson. Huge lesson there. Greg, there was a key moment in your career you talked about in the book. It was years ago when you were asked by a high profile technology company, a client to give a series of presentations on leadership. So we're sticking with the insecure overachiever, you know, model that we're talking about here, right? That the that the British took, you know, in their trek to the South Pole. You know, for you, this ended up being a failure because you said you were trying too hard. This was a success through failure moment, if there ever was one. Can you share that story? It is a success through failure moment. I'm trying to think about whether it's failure through success moment or something, but I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it certainly was an interesting moment. Well, I think the success feels like the, the, the takeaway was... Yeah, okay, fair enough. The situation is that that tech company, already well-known, but still up and coming in, in a critical period of their development, had reached out. They were familiar with my work. They said, listen, we just we want you to start by doing maybe three events with us and then, and then hopefully just partner together for the next two or three years as we go through this transition. So it was just like a great opportunity and they were already on board. I, I wasn't selling. I wasn't, I didn't have to get them up. They just came ready for it. Everything was approved. I actually didn't have to change any of my slides, any of my handouts, everything. It was all approved. They already had it. They already printed it, everything. And then the night before, I just thought, well, you know, I've been doing this new thinking and new research and so on. Maybe I should, maybe I should just do it on that instead because, you know, I'm just going to push this. and. And so, and so then I started messing with the slides and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll just redo all the slides. And so I did that and it's getting later and later into, into the night and, oh, let me just do a new handout. And I didn't pull an all nighter, but I didn't sleep nearly long enough. And so the next day I wake up, I'm in a foggy state. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm, you know, emailing one of the, my, my point person within the company and, uh, can you just do a new handout and I'm just going to do the slides and then I get to the event and I'm, they've got this set up behind me. So I don't even know what the slides are well enough. It's not well rehearsed or thoughtfully. So I'm having to turn around for that. And somebody asks me a question, a perfectly reasonable question based on one of the slides. And I was like, oh, well, that hasn't really given the right impression. And so then I felt defensive about that. The whole thing is just like, you know, you talk about, you know, what is, what's the term? Uh, stealing failure from the jaws of victory or something like that. Because all I had to do was the effortless thing. All I had to do was what was already approved and planned and, and, and simple, but I overthought it and overexerted it. And as a result, sabotaged my performance. Didn't get double the results. I got worse results and I was exhausted. 
and they and they canceled the other two already completely agreed upon events. And of course, the partnership didn't happen after that. Well, look, that's what happened. That's what you really get as an insecure overachiever. That's what you really reap. You don't overachieve, you underperform. And that's true whenever, I mean, that's what overexertion is, is that you, you're putting in more push, more pressure, more effort, more time, more energy, but your results are going down. So you reach at first a diminishing returns, but if you're not careful and you just think, well, I'm not getting the results I want, therefore I need to exert even more, you will end up with negative returns. That is, the result will be worse than if you'd done nothing at all. That's literally what happened to me. I had a negative return. If I'd done nothing that night, I would have had a great result the next day. And this is true for, you know, overthinking and overexerting in presentations, but in any, you know, in any endeavor. And for the listener, I want you to kind of put that in perspective in your own life. Like, what's that thing that you, you freaking blew it? Gosh, if I just stopped, didn't overthink it, like whatever it is that you blew, right? (laughs) Success can come after that, right? Success can come from that. I mean, there's this great lesson that you've, you've learned. And I'll be honest, it probably, Greg, has saved you a whole heck of a lot of work down the road because of that lesson, right? Because of accepting like, okay, what I've done is, is good enough. Don't overwork. Don't put in more effort than is needed because that could actually prompt a setback. Yes, that's right. I mean, of course, life is learning. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, the point of the exercise. And, and in fact, one of the chapters in Effortless is, is specifically about this, about how you approach learning. Your primary learning in life is from mistakes, is from error. And so designing your life for making learning-sized mistakes is critical for high performance. I'm thinking here of, of the Kramer Prize, uh, who's a London industrialist, Henry Kramer, who said, you know, I want to try and encourage human-powered flight uh, innovation. This is basically a, a bike with wings. You know, how could you maybe design it so that somebody could uh, fly? This was only 10 years before there was a man on the moon. And so it's really extraordinary. You know, time for invention in this area, he thinks it won't be a big challenge, but it turns out 17 years later, no one has achieved the goal won the prize, which is to, to fly around this figure eight, uh, you know, these pylons without an engine. Well, come Paul McCready comes along. Uh, he's broke. He has no team behind him, as everyone else has who's tried to achieve this over the last 17 years and failed. He has his son and some, you know, family and friends type situation. His young son becomes his test pilot. Uh, And he's staring at the problem and suddenly realizes everyone's trying to solve the wrong problem. What they should be trying to do, he thinks, is to create a machine that can fail fast and be rebuilt cheap and quick. Everyone else is trying to build this beautiful machine that is capable in the first time it tries that it is to be able to achieve the goal. And so they built these things out of wood and out of plastic and and gorgeous things that looked impressive. And they would take them out to try them out. They would crash inevitably. And then it might be as much as six months before they would go and try it again. They'd go back to the drawing board. Okay, what did we, what what we must have thought about this all wrong. And 
And so their learning cycles are six-month cycles, perhaps. Well, with his very ugly machine that he created, the Gossamer, this thing would crash, and they'd just put you know, a broom handle and some tape on, and within five minutes, they'd be back up in the air. They might have four or five crashes and attempts in a single day. Uh, that might be as many times as their competitor teams would have in the lifetime of their machines. And so it took them 227 fails or something like that. But that's they were the ones that, that, that won the prize. And then two years later, they won the prize in the second Kramer Prize to, to you know, man, human-powered flight across the English Channel. And they were able to achieve that too. It was the same process. You want to make failure not shameful, for sure not, not massive so that if you fail, you've lost everything. You want to create learning-sized failure and embrace it, the courage to be rubbish and to not pretend you didn't fail either uh, because that will just slow your progress down to admit that, to admit that you weren't wise in the past, even if that past was 10 minutes ago. It, it just means you're wiser now than you used to be pretend that you got it all right in the past all the time and to feel that pressure, you have to be perfectionist about everything. This is actually going to slow your progress down significantly. That's it right there. I mean, that's success through failure and a neat little package for you. And you know, there's, there's another part in the book where you talk about, this is my favorite quote, Greg, from the whole book is, there's no mastery without mistakes. There's no mastery without mistakes. I mean, in this Obviously, sounds an awful lot like success through failure, but but here's here's the challenge. You know, what do you say to the person who's listening? And this morning they tried to run a, a half a mile but quit; they couldn't do it. Right? They asked their boss for a raise, but they got told no. Or they tried something that they thought was going to work for them, but it didn't work to connect with their kids or something like that. Right? And it, and it didn't work. Right? Like this concept of there is no mastery without mistakes. It sounds good on a podcast. It sounds good in a book. It sounds good for other people. But what about when it comes to me? Like failure is so painful. Like what do you say to that person who's in the midst of feeling that failure right now? Yeah, I mean, there's two kinds of failure, right? There's the, there's the thing itself and then there's the way you talk to yourself about the thing itself. That's what I think is really the problem here. If you try, okay, you try and talk to your kids and, and to engage with them and they're, they're not interested and you feel rejected by that moment and then you beat yourself up for trying and blame them and blame you and so on, you, you can relive that failure 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. I mean, that's the stuff grudges are made of too. You know, you, you, oh, well, yeah. And you're reliving that past moment. That's not going to serve you. You know, what you want to do is sort of think about you know, Steph Curry, right, whose advantage, you know, I've done a decent amount of research into, you know, how he trains and how he operates and why he has been, you know, so, well, one of the reasons why he's so fascinating to watch. But one of the things that, that is a competitive advantage for him is that he's present right now. He's not worried like most of us are about the last shot. He's not thinking about it, both victory or failure. He's just moving on to the next thing. Okay. Let's try that again. Let's do the next one. Let's do the next one. And that, that ability to not be caught up in the past and to be present in this moment, it gives him a tremendous advantage over other people who are either celebrating too long about some victory they've just had, a shot they just made, or complaining and berating themselves about one that they didn't. You want to make it cheap 
to fail in both making small bets in the first place. So if you fail, it doesn't matter. You know, you're not betting everything, but also to make it emotionally cheap to fail. And I think that's the bigger area for people to get over failure. And I think what we need to do is instead of, if you know, if we have time to berate ourselves, I think we have time to be grateful. And this is counterintuitive, I think, because even people who believe in gratitude or have heard that gratitude matters and thankfulness matters generally think that means being grateful for things that are good, things that go right. But I don't think that goes nearly far enough. What I would call radical gratitude is that you're grateful for everything. You're grateful for the mistake too. You're grateful for the failing as well. I mean, really, that's that's when you've made progress is where you can say, I mean, even think about greatest failure of your life. Think about the, the time maybe or the time that somebody hurt you the most, you know, something massive. When you can finally say thank you, thank you for what that taught me. Thank you for the experience. That means you have what you need to go forward. And so I think if you can combine gratitude for failure, I'm thankful that that thing didn't work out. Even if you don't know why you're thankful yet, just start it that way. The journal that I mentioned is is basically a a radical gratitude journal. And so, you know, I I estimate that I've written well beyond 10,000 things I'm thankful for. And they're not all they're not all positive things, what you'd think of as positive. Sometimes I'm writing about, well, I'm thankful this thing didn't work how I expected it to. And I don't even know why I'm thankful yet. But as I say it, it opens up the possibility that there's a reason. And then some answer comes as you start to learn rapidly from your mistakes. And so, and so I think that that radical gratitude is a way to make it cheaper and faster to celebrate failure rather than to berate failure. So many great principles, so much wisdom here, Greg, for the listener who, who's bought in, who, who wants to adopt this mindset. What's an action item? What's something that they can do, let's say in the next 24 to 48 hours to start adopting this mindset and putting it into action in their own lives? Yeah. Let me give you a few things, right? Number one is to to create a done for the day list every day. Take a moment, take, do a microburst, 10 minutes, no more but no less, write out a list of the most important things you want to do. But the things when you say, if I'm done with that list, I'm done for the day. I'm not going to be pushing anymore. And so a done for the day list helps you to not overexert today. And it also helps you to keep the other rule we talked about, which I think is a daily rule. So it's something they can start doing immediately. Don't do more today than you can completely recover from by tomorrow. So that's kind of two things. I think a third thing related to this gratitude is this rule. After I complain in the next 24 hours, I will say one thing I am thankful for. Everyone's going to complain. Everyone listening to this is going to complain about something in the next 24 to 48 hours. And I'm not saying give it up, giving up complaint. I'm just saying turn it into a a better habit, a better ritual by saying at least one thing you're thankful for. Uh, Even about the thing you're complaining about is an extra extra award that you can have. Uh, The other things, and we've talked about them, but by way of review, is to ask how can this thing be effortless? How am I making this harder than it needs to be. And if I just summarize, give one more that we haven't talked about, but I think is relevant is, is rest, uh, is to take a nap. <laughs> For a lot of insecure overachievers, if you say, hey, go run a marathon, maybe they do know how to do that. But, you know, they'd know how to set up the goals and, and, and you know, force themselves and push themselves. 
But if you say to the same person, okay, go take a nap, they're like, oh, I don't know how to do that. That's its own challenge. But a nap, the science behind that, the data shows that uh, certainly if like a serious nap, which you don't have to start with that, but a 90-minute nap will return to you mental capacities, abilities to process and think almost as much as a whole night's sleep. Uh, and so you can, you know, there's, there's examples, and I've experienced it myself, of being able to double productivity by taking a nap because your discernment gets the boost to so you're working on the right things. Those are, I think, maybe we covered something like five things there that people could do right away to apply what we've talked about. Absolutely. Lots of great action items for the listener. You know, where you can get those. Go to jimharsherjr.com slash action for all the quotes and notes and action items from this episode. Greg, where can people find you, follow you, et cetera? I would just encourage people to do one thing, which is uh, they can go to gregmcewan.com and sign up the one minute Wednesday newsletter. One minute is just the most concise possible thing that we can come up with that that helps people just to to gently, uh, even effortlessly keep these ideas in mind so they can make those small uh, adjustments, micro adjustments uh, to be able to do what really matters, but without burning out. Excellent. Listeners, you know what to do. Greg, thanks for making time to come on the show again. My pleasure. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.